Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. Mm-hmm. So I literally had that experience and I'm like, yeah, this is this is what doesn't work in a series is when yeah. you mix up yeah. too much. And, you know, not to to go too far off topic, but something that does evolve with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire compared to the first three books is that we're changing categories. We're going from middle grade to young adult. And you'll notice in the content and the content that is selected, especially in the beginning, is different. Like there is a different feel. The story isn't different, but there's a different feel to darkness coming into play here. So we'll get into that a little bit more. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. So whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And once again, I'm joined by a very special guest, Abigail Perry, who is a developmental editor and the host of an amazing podcast called Lit Match, where she helps writers find the best literary agent for their writing and publishing careers. I will link to her podcast in the show notes as well as where you can find Abigail around the internet. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you already know the deal about these first chapter episodes. But just in case you're brand new here or in case you need a reminder, Abigail and I are taking a look at the first chapter in each of the Harry Potter books to see how J.K. Rowling hooks our attention and pulls us into the story. It's also been really fun to see how she develops not only as an author from book to book, but also how these first chapters change from book to book as well. So in today's episode, we're digging into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and we're going to analyze it on both the macro and the micro level. So basically, we're asking why does this chapter work, and then how does the scene or the scenes within this chapter work? So that's a very quick overview of what we're going to dig into today. You'll hear more explanation for everything once we get into the episode. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive right into the conversation. I've been waiting all day to have this conversation with you about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, because... It's going to be a doozy. This it's going to be it's going to be a doozy, and we're really excited because neither of us are writing or editing this book, so we're coming to it with more fresh eyes than the other few books. I mean, saying that as people who have read this book a billion times, though, mm-hmm. it's going to be a fun chat today. It is going to be really fun. So, like always, what we're going to do to analyze the first chapter for Harry Potter, if you've been following along with the Harry Potter episodes, we like to look at the big picture first. So we use seven key first chapter questions from Paula Munez, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. So we do that first look at the big picture. And then we zero in on the small picture by looking at the five commandments, which we take in from StoryGrid. 
So as a summary for the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and we are just looking at the first chapter today, it's called The Riddle House. To preface it, we know who Tom Riddle is now because of Mm -hmm. Chamber of Secrets. So go ahead. Yep. So I have Frank Rice, the gardener of the deceased riddles of Little Hangleton and a current employee to the rest, the current residents of the Riddle House, wakes up in the middle of the night and sees lights flickering in the Riddle House. He assumes this is a group of boys who like to mess with him. But when he enters the house and reaches the room, he overhears two men who are later known, at least the reader knows, as Wormtail and Voldemort in the room. They discuss a murder of a woman named Bertha Jorkins and ambiguously discuss a devised plan to capture and likely harm a boy named Harry Potter, who we, of course, all know. They mention a faithful servant who's not currently in the room and how the servant's going to return to them. And also there's going to be an important role that Wormtail will fulfill by the end of the mission. But Wormtail doesn't know the details of it. Voldemort says something like, I don't want to ruin the surprise for you. And I pause you because I die over that part where he says, I will allow you to perform an essential task for me, one that many of my followers would give their right hand to perform. So clever. He literally does have to give us our hands. (laughs) It's so clever. Yeah. And then so then after that, then the guinea, who, of course, is Voldemort's giant snake, slithers past Frank. They talk about how it's really, you know, really amazing description, how as the guinea slithers, she cuts out dust in the floor with her giant body which is really cool, past Frank and into the room. Voldemort then starts to talk to Nagini, who tells him that Frank is overhearing everything outside. So before Frank can even do anything, Wormtail pulls open the door and pulls Frank into the room. And Frank bravely stands his ground against Voldemort, which is really cool. And I'd like to talk about that later. Yeah. And of course, standing your ground against Voldemort, especially if you're muggle, is going to be bad news bears. He murders Frank. And then miles away in a house in Private Drive, Harry Potter wakes up. To a scar burning. To a scar burning. Yes. Yeah. Very important detail. So yeah, really fun, kind of another prologue in disguise. Definitely gives us a different vibe than the last couple books. Abigail and I talk about this a lot, how this book kind of takes us out of middle grade territory and brings us more into young adult territory. And I think we can really feel that in this first chapter. I know I get, I'm getting ahead of myself. So go ahead and bring us into the seven questions. Yeah, no, I mean, it's hard to reel ourselves in. I know. That's one, right? I mean, it's hard to reel ourselves in. Every time, but I'm just really, I'm really excited. Okay, we're going to talk about the seven questions first, and that's going to discuss the big picture. Now, if you are on episode four with us with the first chapters, you're probably getting pretty familiar with these seven questions. You'll notice that a lot of our answers tend to be the same because they're books of the same series. So that makes sense. This book also... Yeah, I'm going to pause because I feel like sometimes series writers make things super complicated and they're like, should one book be this and another book be this, another book be that? No, like usually not because the readers are coming back. We wouldn't we wouldn't probably want the next Harry Potter book if it all of a sudden turned into a straight up romance, Mm -hmm. you know, or just delivered us something different than we already had. So, yes, the answers are the same. And if you're writing a series, yours will probably be, too. And that's actually a good thing. Yeah, I actually think it's a fatal mistake if you change. You know, it's one yeah. like, you know, it's one of those things. I think was it Brandon Sanderson does amazing lessons for BYU, I think that's right, on YouTube. And I just remember in one of the episodes, there was a fantasy writer who couldn't understand why he wasn't being successful. And Brandon Sanderson said immediately when he read the book, it was it started out as action and then went to something else. So well, basically and- it's like those readers are looking for certain expectations, right? And the big right. picture, especially for chapters, they set up those expectations. 
I actually had this reading experience with A Discovery of Witches, that series. Mm -hmm. I loved the first book. It was, you know, magic, witches, action, romance, all the things I like. And then in the second book, it kind of became more historical fiction. And I don't even know what content genre it was. I didn't finish it. And I don't, I rarely ever put a book down. Mm-hmm. So I literally had that experience and I'm like, yeah, this is this is what doesn't work in a series is when yeah. you mix up. Yeah. Too much. And, you know, not to to go too far off topic, but I think one thing that does happen that's different and we'll get into this more. So I'm just going to mention it and then we'll dive in deeper during the big picture. But something that does evolve with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire compared to the first three books is that we're changing categories. We're going from middle grade to young adult. And you'll notice in the content, in the content that is selected, especially in the beginning, is different. Like there is a different feel. The story isn't different, but there's a different feel to darkness coming into play here. So we'll get into that a little bit more. And also, I just wanted to say real quick, notice how you might not change genre, but stakes are being raised. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Instead of in the first three books where it's like we bring him close to danger a lot. And then at the end, it's like he's actually in life or death danger. In these books, we're going to get him closer to life and death a lot quicker or a lot more often. And also reinforcing the idea that those life and death stakes mean nothing if we don't love the character. So notice as we get further and further into the series, you tend to love characters more and more. So the closer they come to death, the more we're drawn in and care about it. So it's just, right. it's, just it's just a masterpiece. Yeah. All things are <laughs> coming together. Yes, we love it. So anyway, let's go back into those seven questions. The first one is genre. This one might actually have a little bit of a discussion to talk about here. So genre, the question being, what kind of story is it? We just said we're moving from middle grade to young adult territory. So that takes care of the commercial side of this. So young adult fantasy, right? Content genre wise, we have had plenty of discussions about this, just like in Prisoner of Azkaban, because I'm sure you all know, I think we've said this before, that we are working with a team, four of us, to analyze the the whole Harry Potter series. And some of these books have been analyzed as thrillers within the first draft of our analyses. And now we're kind of questioning, well, are they thrillers or is it an action story where the stakes have been escalated? Mm-hmm. So right now we're kind of in this state where we have the analysis done as a thriller, but we may have changed our minds. Right. So Do you want to go on that a little? Yeah, I do, because it's been really messing with my head (laughs) since we did Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. And I think when I'm looking at with action, especially like even when I'm looking at the content of this first chapter, one thing that is undeniable to me in all Harry Potter books, especially as they get darker, four, five, six, seven, the crime subplot really starts to become essential to movement in the plot, advancement in the plot in every way. And there is a crime that happens in this first chapter, but I don't think it's about a crime. Like, we don't think that this story is about Harry trying to, you know, stop Voldemort essentially from creating more crime. So I guess it kind of is not this, not this specific book. It's more about him trying to survive. It's not about trying to discover who killed Frank. Like, all of these things create a sense of urgency and agency to the plot advancement. But Harry's want is more about survival and saving the victims and not so much about trying to bring justice to basically Voldemort. But ultimately, that's there too. You know, right. It kind of like gives heat to the fire. But I don't think it's about that. What do you yeah. Think? And so the way that I was trying to think about this is like, let's say that because we know Sirius Black was exonerated, I guess we can say in the last book. So let's say that Harry knew, I'm totally making this up. Harry knew that Voldemort wants to kill Sirius. 
and he's already killed Frank, he's already killed Bertha, right? That might then become, to me, a thriller where he's trying to prevent Voldemort from killing Sirius and he gets in the way. So he then becomes a victim. Mm -hmm. But right away, we see here that Voldemort's next target is pretty much going to be Harry. And Harry feels this in chapter two. We don't see that in this first chapter, but he sees it and feels it because he can, you know, connect with Voldemort through the scar. And it becomes about like, oh, what am I going to do? Because Voldemort wants to kill me. And Voldemort even says something in this first chapter, like we have to wait until the Quidditch World Cup is over. You know, I can't remember if Harry sees this in his vision or not, but mm -hmm. we know that he's kind of coming for Harry pretty darn quick. So they talk about Harry like Harry yeah. is with the exception of Bertha Jorkins, who is dead, confirmed dead. Mm -hmm. They talk about that there's a plan and Harry's involved in it. But specifically, Wormtail actually has his own crisis decision in the store, in the scene. Yeah. Where he has to flirt with the idea of do I suggest that we don't go after Harry Potter or not, which is terrifying to question Voldemort on anything. Yeah. Voldemort. And I can't I can't deal with flirt and Wormtail <laughs> on the same set. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. That yeah. But yeah, yeah. But I think that it's, you know, it's a really interesting debate there because we know from Prisoner of Azkaban that Wormtail owes Harry his life, really. So there's kind of this like hidden sense of loyalty, but ultimately Wormtail's just a coward. So it's like kind of whatever is also going to save his own literal rat tail. So I think this idea is just really interesting because very much this plan is around Harry Potter. And Harry gets that sense that he's coming from him, which speaks to when he actually goes into the Triwizard Tournament. An interesting factor, because Harry is never one who, I mean, Harry's one of Harry's most admirable traits is courage, right? Yeah. So Harry's not one to shy away from a challenge, but he doesn't want to be in these games. He does not want to be in this tournament. And he's scared, I think, to be in it. You know, he's yeah. scared to find out what's going to happen because it seems like someone is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think for me, I'm landing on action just yep. because his goal is survival. It's not like I'm going to go do something. I'm going to get in trouble while I'm doing it. And I'm going to try to survive that eventually. He wants to survive from this this vision he has within the first two chapters. Yep. I agree with you. So we're we're settling on action, but we can see why people would lean towards a thriller. Yes. Yeah. Yep. OK, so the second question deals with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? Right. And so we can kind of infer a few things from this first chapter and the title. So we know there's going to be a goblet of fire. We don't know what that means. Maybe the back jacket cover copy told us that there's going to be this tournament. Right. But we don't really know what that means yet. That's OK. We know that Voldemort's trying to kill Harry. So is mm -hmm. Harry going to survive or not? We're already mm -hmm. wondering that in this first chapter. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. The third question deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? Yeah. So this is, I think, another example of we start zoomed out, right? Because we get all this history about what happened when the Riddles were murdered, who the town is blaming for the murder of the Riddles, the parents, right? Mm -hmm. And then we kind of zoom into Frank Bryce's perspective, who the town blames for killing the Riddles, even though he, the evidence was never there to really convict him. Mm -hmm. So we zoom into Frank's point of view, and then we kind of see him dealing with the conflict of the scene, which we'll get to more in the scene analysis. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's that's an interesting discussion. I'm glad you brought up both because yeah. I think that's something to talk about. Question number four deals with character. Which characters should they care about the most? They being the reader. 
Yeah. And so this is fun because obviously we're very worried about Harry. Once we get into the scene and we realize that Voldemort is targeting him specifically, Mm -hmm. but we also feel bad for Frank because he has not been treated well. He has a limp. He's been into war. He's been picked on by these kids in town. So Mm -hmm. we care about both Frank and Harry. Maybe a little bit of Wormtail. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize a little bit more about Frank, some details about Frank there, because he's really interesting in in modeling what makes a sympathetic character, I think. Because Frank is the point of view for the most part that we're following. There is, you know, like Savannah had said, some away from Frank and then pulling into Frank. And then as we go into the story, it will be more with Harry. But Frank is the character, I think, actually in the scene that you care about the most. And then Harry because Harry's mentioned, and of course, we all love Harry. Everyone, we know it's about Harry, right? Yeah. But Frank, it's so interesting because like immediately being a sympathetic character because he's falsely accused of murder. So everyone picks on him, the town and the kids in town. There's one woman who stands up during the gossip who says that Frank had a hard war. So we already know that he's been, he's has that hard life and he has the limp as even a, you know, probably like a physical permanent reminder of it. And he just wants a quiet life. But it's interesting because they even say that over the night, the gossip had turned to, of course, it had to have been Frank who murdered them. He gets off because Voldemort killed him with Avada Kedavra, right? So there is no evidence that muggles would understand. But then he it's really interesting because he continues to work at the riddles. So basically, he really does want this isolated, quiet life. But my moment with Frank is when he's pulled into that room. Yeah, he's so brave. He's brave. And I even wrote a line down because it just, it really stuck with me. And basically when he's standing outside of the room, he's humanized very much so because they talk about, he talks about his fears. Well, he doesn't, you know, talk in first person, but we understand his fears. We understand actually even like when Nagini pins him against the door, he's paralyzed by fear. So very relatable in this situation. You're overhearing murder. Like that's scary, right? Like literally he thinks that there's a psychopath behind the door, but then he's pulled into the room and there's a line that says, now that the time had come for some sort of action, he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. And I just thought like, oh man. And then of course, like he doesn't know Voldemort. So I think it'd be even more difficult to stand up to Voldemort if you understood what he was capable of. But Frank has inklings that this is a psychopath who has murdered someone and is going after a boy. So it's really interesting. He speaks up against him and stands up against him. And I just think that is the coolest thing. And then when Voldemort turns around, they talk about how he screams and then hit his dead yeah. before he hits the floor. So you just, I mean, you just feel terrible for him. He would definitely no. be in Gryffindor. And I think it's fun. Like he's a little bit of the flavor that Harry is, you know, he's scared, but he's going to do the right thing anyway. And I like that moment too. I love the reminder that he's defaulting to this strength that he had to find in war. One of the worst times of his life. Yes. So yeah, I love that too. And it was, you know, we know Voldemort as readers. We know what he's about. We know Frank's not going to make it out of the scene. No, we don't. Frank, like you said, he knows he's up against a murderer, but he does the right thing anyway. And the other thing I want to say really quick about it is that it parallels the climax of the book, which I think is really beautiful because at the end, when Harry has his final confrontation with Voldemort in the graveyard, number one, Cedric does, he has less time to even think about it, but he basically does what Frank would have done as well. Right. And then Harry, there's that moment where he's hiding behind the tombstones and Voldemort tells him to face him. And Harry has a thought that if Voldemort's going to kill him, he's going to die 
standing in front of him, looking at him like his father. Yeah. And in that I moment, bump still. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's just so good. And it, I just think it's really beautiful because it parallels Frank, but Frank doesn't get out of it and Harry does get out of it. So I, I yeah. thought that was really cool to open. Well, and it's kind of fun too, like thinking of it this way, if we don't get Harry Potter in the first scene or first chapter, mm-hmm. we're getting the flavor of him and we're getting sure. that guy that's standing up to evil mm-hmm. in Frank Bryce. Oh, I love that you said that. I think yeah. that's a really great point, Savannah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty cool. Yeah. Super cool. So question number five is setting. The question is where and when does the story take place? Yep. So we're in Little Hangleton. We're at the Riddle House. I think we know it's a couple weeks from the next chapter. It's a couple weeks before Harry's 14th birthday. We know it's in August. Yeah. It's just like an August night. Okay. Question number six, core emotion is what we're focusing on here. And the question is, how should the reader feel about what's happening? Yeah. So obviously we feel bad for Frank Bryce. I even feel bad for Wormtail. You know, I do a little. I feel worried for Harry by the end of the scene, which is exactly what we should feel if this is a story about his survival. We also have this like, I don't know, is it dramatic irony or something where it's like, we know this is this confrontation's coming. We just don't know how and we don't know when. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally. All right. And question number seven is about stakes. So it's really cool because we've talked about stakes in a scene, stakes in a story, stakes in a series. Why should they care, they being the reader, why should readers care about what happens next? Yeah, so I think we know there's life and death stakes in this book because we see it in this first chapter. Frank dies. We know Bertha's dead. Voldemort's going to stop at nothing to kill Harry. He has some master plan. And we care because we don't want Harry to die. So we're we're just worried. We're in it. We're ready. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. And that means that it's time to take us into the small picture, analysis, which means yep. that we're going to do the scene analysis. So we've had the summary. Savannah always has had made a really good point that I like to apply as well. We need to talk about wants before we get into the actual breakdown because if yep. you know what a, what a character wants that helps you start to tackle the commandments and actually like what makes a scene happen move forward yeah, the, right the context of kind of why we're here what we're doing and all that fun stuff so let's so talk about in this scene i guess what does frank if he's our point of view character what does he mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. and that's who i would follow would mm-hmm. be frank So real quick before we jump into it, I think that we should talk about, because we'll say I could see writers debating. I know I debated it initially if there are two scenes or one scene in this chapter, because the story there's and there's actually even a page break. If I remember correctly, there is a section that talks about the riddles, this family that wasn't actually really well liked, who gets murdered and how Frank is framed for that murder and then gets off. Right. And then we have like a page break or we, we at least have like an understanding of movement of time. Because it was, 50, you know, it was this idea of 50 years ago and then present day. And then it goes into the event that I think is the, what I see as the scene. So it's the idea of Frank overhearing what I gave a summary about. So I'm curious, Savannah, and, you know, just for listeners, the fun of this, Savannah and I didn't compare notes before we hopped on this call. So it's yeah. fun to have organic conversation as we analyze this. Do you see that first opening as a part of the scene for one scene in one chapter? Or do you see it? And so it's, that would make it a beat. Or do you see it as a separate scene? So there are two scenes in one chapter. I, I'm going to say it's one scene because I just looked in the book and there is a scene break in there. However, I go back and I think about, OK, what is the arc of change in that first part? Right. So the riddles were killed. Frank was kind of framed or blamed. And then he gets off. Right. I mean, we care about that going into the next scene. But is it that meaningful to put like a, a weight of a scene? You know what I'm trying to say? No, no, I do. Meaningful. 
Is it meaningful enough to call a scene? And I don't think so. And I would agree with you. And I sat there because I do think you can name five commandments with that scene. But here's the trick. You should be able to name five commandments in a beat. Mm -hmm. But a beat belongs in a scene when we talk about units of story. Savannah and I have talked about how with a beat, there is a change in behavior or a change in tactic. And in a scene, there is a change in value. And for me, and this is just my personal analysis, remembering that Socratic learning method, right? We can all see things differently. It's just about defending it. I think that the main value change in this chapter is about life and death. Mm -hmm. And that is how I framed the five commandments where that beat is more about backstory Mm -hmm. that needs to explain context of where we're going and why we should be afraid, essentially. So I do think that you can name five commandments in the sense of it being revolved around Frank being sent to jail and then released from jail. Right. And I'll pause you because the turning point there is that there is no evidence Mm -hmm. that points to Frank. So what Abigail is saying is like at that point, the police can say, well, we're going to keep you even though we know you didn't do it because there's no evidence Mm -hmm. or we can let you go and potentially you might do this again. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's their crisis. They let him go. That's the climax. And the resolution of this beat is kind of now he's alone. He's, you know, No one wants to talk to him still. Mm -hmm. And people still are kind of suspicious of him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's cool that you pulled out the police officers, because in my perspective, I saw the police officers as the driving, like basically characters, the main characters making the decision there. But the main character in the first scene is Frank. Yeah. So that's where it's like Frank. It needs to be about Frank making the decision, the crisis decision, a turning point that happens to Frank. And for me, that's going to tie to his want. What is he trying to accomplish? And the value shift, which is going to determine life or death. So that's where I went. And not to get too far in the weeds because we could, but if we were in Frank's perspective for that first beat, it's like, what does he want? He wants to not be blamed. He wants to get out of jail. Mm -hmm. What can he really do about it? Nothing. Nothing. He can argue, but like until that evidence comes through and even when it does, it's not up to Frank what happens. Exactly. So exactly. That's another thing that, like Abigail said, points us to this is a beat. It's not really a value shift, but it is important to set up the backstory and notice how it is setting up backstory, but it's not an info dump. It has its own structure. Mm -hmm. And now we're in the meat of the scene, which we're going to talk about. So in this part, what is Frank's goal? Yeah. And I think that Frank's goal here is ultimately he thinks it's boys, but it's to get whoever's messing around with the house away. He wants to basically stop whoever's doing whatever they're doing in the house from doing what they're doing. And I would even back up a little further than that, because in the beginning, he wakes up because his knee's bothering him, right? Mm-hmm. And then he wants to go down and get, I think, a hot water bottle mm-hmm. or something to put on his knee. So that's like what he's doing when we're dropped into this scene. Oh, that's and so then, interesting. I love that you pulled that out because I saw that as a complication before the incident. incident. So, so interesting. Sorry. Well, yeah. And so I'm looking at the scene now because where is the part? I'm just looking to see what happens first because we Mm -hmm. see uh, weeds were not the only thing he had to contend with, blah, blah, blah. It was Frank's bad leg that woke him. It was painting him worse even his old age. So right before that, it says, so when Frank awoke one night in August and saw something very odd up at the old house, he merely assumed that the boys had gone one step further in their attempts to punish him. Mm -hmm. But then it's kind of saying, It was his leg that woke him Mm -hmm. and then he saw something odd at the house, right? So this is interesting because it brings us to what is the inciting incident, right? And the inciting incident is that causal or coincidental thing that creates a goal or changes the way that a character goes about to change their goal. So, so interesting. So tell me, Savannah, 
What did you see as the incident incident? Because I wonder if it's the same as mine or different. Thing. I saw that there's somebody in the house. There's okay. lights on at the house. Okay. So I saw that too. Yeah. And I think that this is really interesting, just the idea, because that to me establishes the main goal for the scene. Right. But he does have that initial goal that makes the movement in the scene before the inciting incident interesting. Right. And the reason I wanted to pull it out is because I read a lot of pages where it's like the character woke up because it was like too hot. And then he just like throws his blankets off and then looks out the window for 20 minutes. And then it's like, oh, we see something. Mm -hmm. And that's like not that's not what's happening here. Frank is actively trying to do something. Mm -hmm. He's trying to relieve his pain. And Mm -hmm. because of that, he sees the light on. And why I think this is important in this in the book, because I think it's interesting to talk about how this scene is different in the adapted version of the film, because the adapted version of the film literally starts with the light being turned on. It starts like he is like making he's already making the water, if I remember this correctly, and then immediately we see the light. So it gets it moves quite like a lot faster. But in the book. I think there's value to having him waking up with the achy leg and going down to get the water bottle because it grounds us in character more. And again, yeah, it does. It creates that sympathetic character because we already know that he's been in a war and now we're getting to before it's been more talked about. And now we're seeing it firsthand. And we see like this 70, I think he's 77, the 77 year old man who just lives by himself trying to just alleviate pain. Right. And the kids are picking on him like this is bad. So yeah. Yeah. So uh, we agree on the inciting incident. So this causes his new goal of going to figure out or what's going on or to scare the kids away, whatever, just get rid of the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then there's complications or conflict. And then we get to a turning point. What do you see as that? Okay. So we'll see if we have the same turning point or not. So turning point, action or revelation that thrusts a character into a crisis decision. Right. So for me, when I'm looking at scenes, I go back to the idea of like when I I guess like I decide the value shift based on what I do is the turning point crisis decision. And for me, I have to see the combination of the two be the most important thing in the scene. I can't pick between crisis decision or some people call it dilemma. I can't pick between crisis decision and turning point as like the important thing that changes the value. They're so similar. I I, They go together, right? Like the, the decision is caused because of the turning point. So there are quite a bit, at least how I saw it, quite a bit of complications before the turning point for me. Right. And really important details that maybe we can talk about after we do our analysis. But I decided that I thought the turning point that caused the greatest crisis decision for Frank was when Nagini is behind him and pins him against the door. Basically, he's pinned between the room with Voldemort and Wormtail, where he believes a psychopath is plotting a murder, and the snake. And you don't have to have a crisis decision written on the page. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because in this chapter, it is, but not in a way of Frank had to decide what he was going to do. It's artfully written, right? In the sense of Frank is paralyzed by fear and he realizes that the only way that he can escape is by running into the room with the two men. Right. But if he does, we read it. Yeah. I was like, I kind of want to read it. Okay. I have it in front of me if you want me to read it. You go for it. It says, and then Frank heard movement behind him in the dark passageway. He turned to look and found himself paralyzed with fright. Something was slithering toward him along the dark corridor floor, and as it drew nearer to the sliver of firelight, he realized with a thrill of terror that it was a gigantic snake at least 12 feet long. Mm -hmm. Horrified, transfixed, Frank stared as its undulating body cut a wide curving track through the thick dust on the floor coming closer and closer. What was he to do? The only means of escape was into the room where the two men sat plotting murder. 
Yet if he stayed where he was, the snake would surely kill him. Yep. So notice that it's not a flat sentence of Frank was paralyzed by fear and he had to choose. Do yeah. I face the snake or do I go into the room? It's designed through context. Yeah. Right. So it, and it's all there in emotion. It's designed through emotion so that it's combining Frank's internal debate with the external surroundings that are forcing him to make a decision. Right. So it's really cool. So that decision, then that crisis decision is, does he let the snake eat him or face the snake? Yeah. Or does he go into the room and risk death there? But ultimately, both options have a result in death. death. Right. Yes. And so it's so funny because we were questioning if we were going to agree. I had the exact same crisis. I highlighted this passage. But what I think is cool about this is his decision to go into the room, it does put him in danger. But what is neat about it is that Nagini's already seen him. Mm -hmm. She's the one that tells Voldemort there's a muggle outside. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if he goes in the room or not necessarily because Nagini is going to tell Voldemort or potentially has already told him. I don't but know. But then what really creates the danger in that is he has no idea that could even happen. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's fun because I think a lot of people, if they get to this crisis, they might be like, oh, the turning point is seeing the snake. And it's like it's the snake seeing him and the snake mm -hmm. approaching. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't matter that that he is afraid of the snake. I mean, it right. kind of does, but it's like it's so hidden under the layers of what's happening. I think it's no, I totally agree. And I think what makes this extra special is that we had Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which delved deeply into being a parcel mouth. Yeah. And we understand that Voldemort can talk to sneaks. So it's interesting because you can look at this idea of suspense in a scene. And I think suspense is created when both the reader and the characters aren't aware of something. But we have a different situation here because it creates actually kind of like fear, even if you're, though you're not aware of it, because we know that Voldemort can talk to snakes. Now, I don't think because you're actually like grounded in Frank's fear, it's very interesting to me, at least to think about how it would be a different crisis, slightly similar, but slightly if it was Harry, because right. if Harry was in between the two. He understands the circumstances, but right. Frank doesn't. So and to that kind of point, that's why, like, if you were writing a scene, you're not going to write a character who's like Steve Irwin that loves snakes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, not only is it a snake, it's a 12 foot giant snake right. that's coming up behind him in a house that he thinks he knows. In London. like In London, yeah. So like on the surface of this, it's scary for Frank. We understand that. But as readers, like Abigail said, we know something different. So we're like, ooh, this is probably worse than Frank thinks. Even realizes, yeah. Right? And it kind of actually creates like even more fear, I think, for him. Yeah. So, you know, his decision, how he decides is climax, right? So go ahead and talk about the climax. Yeah. So this is just like what he does, right? And so what it says in the actual text is, but before he made his decision, the snake was level with him. And then incredibly, miraculously, it was passing. It was following the spitting, hissing noises made by the cold voice beyond the door. And in seconds, the tip of its diamond pattern tail had vanished through the gap. So that's Frank. After this, Frank understands this guy's talking to snakes. But also, is this when like, has Nagini already com communicated that there's a muggle outside? Right. You know, so that's like he can't make his decision because Nagini makes it for him almost by leaving. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then he's drawn into the room because Voldemort's basically like, we know you're there, buddy. And I think that's a really it's this is a really rare thing that you'll see happen in a scene in the sense that 
someone else makes the decision for the character. But I have seen it done quite a few times, actually, in Harry Potter, specifically because Harry's a child and sometimes adults make decisions for him. So it's interesting. I don't know if you were to pay attention to middle grade and young adult in general. I wonder if you'd see that more commonly than an adult novel. Yeah. But just something I'm just pondering now in my head. Yeah. Well, and the cool thing is, is it's not because he doesn't make the decision in this moment. We're not saying he doesn't have agency. Correct. I see a lot of writers writing scenes where the character will just be like, okay, my decision's gone and I don't do anything now. Right. And Frank is still like, he's frozen a little bit in fear. He's also very curious. He still wants his original goal of like figuring out the problem at the house. Like he wants these people to go. So he's still there by choice. And then Wormtail opens the door and Voldemort says, invite him inside. Mm -hmm. At that point, he does not really have a choice. No, he doesn't have a choice. He's forcing it, but he is placed actually in a choice then in the resolution. And I think that this is really something that I'd like to talk about too, because one thing when I first started analyzing stories and scenes, I don't think I'd call it a mistake because it was just something that I was learning to do. But initially my instinct was that I made a lengthier, I wrote out a lengthier climax. Mm -hmm. And probably if I was writing this three years ago, I probably would have written about the climax being all the way through the discussion, the banter between Voldemort and Frank. But now that I have spent more time analyzing scenes, I've realized that I think that the climax is actually a quick moment because it's actually the action. It's just the action of the character making their decision. Right. So for me, the action of the climax is exactly what Savannah just wrote. Suddenly, the guinea is slithering past him. Yeah. That means that the resolution is the rest of the scene. Which is a lot. Right. Which is a lot. But it doesn't mean that the resolution is just explanation. The resolution is still through action. It's an active moment. Yeah. mm -hmm. So again, like just kind of always thinking about the story within the story, within the story, within the story. Things always have their movement in a way of it's more interesting. You learn more about characters when they are forced to act. Right. Although he's forced into the room by Wormtail, this is where he had that beautiful quote of basically this is the moment that he was scared outside the door. But now that he's actually in it, he becomes braver and he thinks about war and he stands up to this man that he sees as evil. He calls him out for murdering, you know, and basically and we know while he was listening outside the door that he's worried about Harry because he knows that this boy Harry's in, in trouble. So if he had escaped this, he probably would have tried to find out who Harry was and try to warn him in some way. Or gone to the police or like anything that a muggle would think to do, right? And I like what you're saying about this because it's not, I always tell people that like the crisis climax reveal character, which is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Frank is sitting there kind of thinking like, okay, well, now that I'm forced in the room, what am I going to do? Right. So, because I could see some people saying, well, him being called in the room and being in front of Voldemort is the turning point. And we're saying it's not that already happened. And now it's just like, well, now that I've dealt with the turning point in crisis, I'm in the room. Like he, he's not sitting there thinking, how am I going to behave at this moment? That's right. He's just acting on his true nature. That's right. So we are really seeing who Frank is. That's and I that's why I love it. Right. Because I think it's really interesting. Like when you have a climax of your story, the climax of any story, the character does. I feel at least like this is my opinion. You know, don't take it for what it is. I have found that I am moved more in the climax. So like the the whole story is the character acting on something like if Frank had already been forced into the room and now he has to make that decision. But why I love this and with Frank is because we really are seeing his character actually through resolution. And we know this is not going to end well. Yeah. We just know as readers, like we know that he's going to, if if he's in that room and he's with Voldemort and he's a muggle, he's dead. Like yeah. there is no escape here, right? 
So what I love is that Frank shows his true colors in that moment. And it speaks to the bravery that I think everyone wants to have in a moment of true danger. Right. You know, basically being able to to stand your ground for what you believe is right or facing someone that you think is evil. Like it's just, you know. He's a hero. Yeah, he is. It's it's heroic. Like you feel that sense of heroism in that. So he is, unfortunately, Voldemort turns around, he screams. We don't know what Voldemort looks like. We know that he's, Voldemort is feeding off of Nagini's milk to be strong, which is, you know, not very strong. But I think that we know that there is this sense of fear of Voldemort is getting into a rhythm of acting on a plan of getting full strength back. Right. And we know that enough that he is so grotesque in this chair that Frank openly screams before and then is killed. Yeah. And so all of that's the resolution, this conversation they have of Voldemort killing him and all that. And then we always like to talk about like, okay, so what has changed? There's multiple perspectives Mm -hmm. we can look at this through. And I think the most obvious, like Frank was alive and now he's dead, right? And that's the value. That's where it's like when I was looking at choosing those commandments, that's the value. We're, We're literally going from life to death here. Yes. The other thing that I think is super fascinating is how does this relate to Harry? Sure. Right. So there's this part too, which I kind of want to back up because Voldemort and Wormtail also face kind of their own crisis in the scene, which when I can see that layered behind the point of view character, I'm always like, this is a strong scene. It's a stronger scene. That's that's the final draft scene instead of a, a scrapped scene. And so we'll go to that in a second. But because Voldemort is kind of firm on his plans, he's telling Wormtail, like, this is what we're doing. This scene moves Harry closer to danger, too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's moving Harry along that global spectrum, even though Harry's not in the scene. We've seen that multiple times throughout the first chapters that we've looked at. Mm-hmm. So, if, you know, if you're writing a scene with a different character's point of view, not your main protagonist, just something to think about. You know, yeah. we do want to touch on the protagonist value shift, too. Absolutely. So let's go back to Wormtail and Voldemort's decision. And it kind of all takes place around this moment where it's like, are you sure you want to do that, Voldemort? Mm -hmm. You know, and so Voldemort's being challenged. You could say that he faces a crisis, however much Voldemort can. And he tells Wormtail, like, no, this is what we're doing. I'm staying firm. Wormtail also faces a crisis in that same moment. It's not even a debate from Voldemort. Voldemort's like, I know. Are you worth keeping around? (laughs) Yeah, but still, like, Wormtail challenging Voldemort is pretty shocking. Well, so I wanted to talk to you about that. Because when you read that, it's sort of out of character for him to do that. And you have to think back to... The comment, I forget who makes it now. You might remember Savannah in Prisoner of Azkaban, but someone says to Harry that once you've done that, someone has saved a life. You're Either forever in debt. Serious. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're forever in debt. So it's interesting that we're seeing this firsthand start to come out and like actually in the first chapter in the next book, right? And you don't even notice it until you like sit and think about it because mm-hmm. you could read this and just be like, Wormtail's being a coward here. He doesn't want to do this. Is it that or is it that he feels he owes Harry? Yep. And it's so interesting because you talked about how you kind of feel bad for Wormtail. And I'm empathetic for Wormtail in the sense of he's just terrified, right? And when people he's act on, he is like when people yeah. and like he's just totally a pawn. And whenever you're in that position, you can just feel so helpless. Mm-hmm. He's just really trying to save his own life, which is, you know, not the heroic thing. But right. ultimately, he's just scared. Yeah. At the same time, we don't like the nasty things that he's doing. Right. And, well, and him right. versus Frank Bryce, like we see the exact example of the opposite of Frank in Wormtail. 
You know, although he is standing up a little more than normal Wormtail would, he's still playing the coward. He's so also get- standing up only when Voldemort is in a place where he literally has to be fed the king's milk at night right. by Wormtail. So it's like he would never do this if Voldemort was in his full power. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. Like he's Wormtail is a little more three dimensional than maybe we give him credit for. Yes. So but in this moment, it's kind of like Wormtail has to figure out how far he's going to push Voldemort because his own life is pretty much always going to be at stake. Yep. And I think more could kill him at any second. Exactly. And I I like that you brought that up about three dimensional Savannah, because I think this is something that J.K. Rowling really does well with characters. And why, while structure and plot is beyond masterful in Harry Potter, we can't not talk about characters and the um, spectacular job that she did executing and developing them. Because it's something like just by putting, and this is just for writers, by putting that one little sprinkle of possibility, we forever question if Wormtail will turn on Voldemort the rest of the series. At least I did. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that it reflects something that she does with Draco Malfoy, mm-hmm. who is very two-dimensional up into Half-Blood Prince. And it's like, wow, can she layer characters? Yeah. Because that's where it's like, yeah, I, I, we do it in real life, right? We make judgments. Being people, we make judgments. But you don't truly know why someone acts until you know everything about what's going on in their life. And it just kind of wakes you up to the idea of like, look, if you make those snap judgments, it's a mistake. Yeah. Because you have to understand the layers. Yeah. And throughout the series, people do it in multiple ways. It's like we judge Hagrid because of how he looks, but he's really good. We judge, you know, Moody maybe because he's he looks different. And then we find out the truth about him and all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a thing in Harry Potter. And I think it's really cool. It is. But yeah, like you said, this sets up the possibility for characters to turn this way. Right. To become mm-hmm. multidimensional. And it also sets up this question of Wormtail throughout the rest of the books. If you ever hear anyone talking about, if you ever hear literary agents or anyone else talking about complex characters, this is what we're talking about, right? Like when you can start to make those layers, that is what makes us interested because it means anything can happen. Yeah. And also the other thing to point out, I think this is a fun example of how every character who's present, including Nagini, has a goal in this scene. Yes. So Nagini is out scouting the house, probably looking for food, probably looking to make sure it's safe, whatever. She's doing something. Frank Bryce is there to figure out what's going on with the light. Voldemort wants to get food. He wants to talk to Wormtail about his plans. Mm -hmm. Wormtail wants to kind of put the brakes on the plans. Mm -hmm. So there's no character that's really being passive which, I mean, who could we say is maybe the most passive? Frank is like stuck to the wall in fear, but he's still not passive. Wormtail is this minion of Voldemort. He's still not passive. He has his own agenda, his Mm -hmm. own agency. Mm -hmm. So, you know. No, it's all really good points. And that's the analysis. So that takes us to the end of the analysis. But I would like to dive a little bit deeper into understanding now the differences. We're going from middle grade to young adult. And I'd like to just say you should never, if you're querying agents, You never, ever should be using a comparable title of Harry Potter. It's ubiquitous. It's a franchise. It literally has its own theme park. Like it's it's more than a book now. Okay. However, another reason why you should never use Harry Potter as a comp is because Harry Potter may be the only series. I'm sure that there might be others, but this is the one that I know most prominently that successfully transitions from middle grade to young adult. And that is because Harry ages. Yeah. So if you were to ever use Harry Potter as a comparable title... Well, what are you? Are you middle grade or young adult? You know, it's kind of causes that confusion, that pause. So it's really interesting because we are getting to age with Harry over the course of seven years. And we go from age 11 
to age 17, right? So it's that huge gap. Like you are a completely different person between 11 and 17. So it's that idea here of like, we're now at 14. He's turned 14 in this book. 13 is kind of that weird age. Are we middle grade or are we young adult? Well, and in real life, isn't that like when we're going to high school kind of? So it's like, it is very different. And we're, we're feeling, we're seeing the difference. I mean, even just looking at length, this is a pretty big book too. Mm -hmm. So like, there's so many markers that show us we're aging. Yes. Yep. And now we're getting into this, this territory though, of we're going from middle grade and we're going to young adults and it's much darker. Yes. We've lost a lot of humor. It's still there, but it's definitely turned down. Mm-hmm. And we've turned up the darkness. We're right. also turning up romance at some point. Yep. 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 Which yep. is the thing for YA. Right. You know, it's interesting when you talk about humor in this first scene. Do you see anything humorous at all in this first scene, Savannah? There was like a few things. Let me see if I can find them. I found it. So this is a weird thing to be funny about, but this also could point to how we're graduating the readers. So it's when the police come back and they have the report about the bodies Mm -hmm. and they've never read an otter report. So then it's like you imagine this team of doctors examining the bodies and they haven't been poisoned. They haven't been stabbed. As a reader, you're kind of like, well, then what's going on? You know, it's a Mm -hmm. little humorous about death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, because this isn't going to be the darkest book, it's like she's introducing us more to death with that little twinge of mystery and humor. Which is a great point, because if I believe in J.K. Rowling interviews, she talks about how she wrote the series about death. Right. Like a death was like a gi- giant influence on it. And yeah. as you get into four, five, six, seven, I mean, by seven, it's dark. I mean, yeah. any characters up for grabs. Right. Yeah. So it's it's just really interesting to see that. And yeah, like this. This sentence says, in fact, the report continued in a tone of unmistakable bewilderment. The riddles all appeared to be in perfect health, apart from the fact that they were all dead. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. a little bit funny, right? Yep. And then I other- heard of three people being frightened to death, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yes. And you can, uh, what I find funny about that is that we all know that it was a killing curse. So it's kind of like, oh, these muggles. <laughs> they right. Know what's going well, on. And even if you don't get to that thought, you're kind of like, well, a snake can like petrify people. So, right. you know, you're kind of like, okay, well, we know what's going on here. Something magical. Sure. sure. Yeah. Just really interesting how she just mega successfully <laughs> moved from yeah. middle grade to young adult. And he- the other thing that I really like to talk about, and I know that I've said interesting about 800 million times now in this episode. <laughs> so sorry for my lack of vocabulary. <laughs> the right word. It's the right word. But I do want to talk about setups and how Rowling does a spectacular job at creating setups that give us, that basically plant secrets or mysteries mm-hmm. that make us want to understand how they're going to be answered in the story. So those expectations, when we speak to big picture expectations, a lot of expectations are dropped in this first chapter and she successfully answers all of them. So as a writer, if you create setups, you better pay them off. Yep. Because a reader is going to, going to pay attention to that and they're going to want to see how it is fulfilled. And when it's fulfilled, it's satisfying. So and what, are, what are some examples? Yeah. So one of the things was one of the things that I had is that we know that Nagini is trying to keep, is basically being the source of keeping Voldemort alive. 
So he's so weak that it's to the point that he has to be fed milk from the snake. So we're going to, event- that makes me want to say that eventually we need to see the state of body, right? We need to eventually understand where this is. The Quidditch World Cup is mentioned. Yeah. So we understand Thank that you. there's a big, a big deal. There's a Quidditch World Cup. We haven't seen the Quidditch World Cup. Of course, we know Quidditch and everyone loves Quidditch, but we don't understand what that is. We also know that there's a lot of security happening yeah. at the Quidditch World Cup. So it's setting up expectations that like anything, when you go to big crowds, if something bad is going to happen it usually would happen in a big crowd so well but also it sets up that potentially harry might feel safe going into this because mm-hmm. everyone knows the security is heightened and then the death eaters show up yep exactly you so, know it's, it's like a source of fun that turns into tragedy mm-hmm. which is in today's world like far too sad of a thing that comes yeah into reality Wormtail hesitates on harry so we've talked about that one so we're having that curiosity the hand cutting yeah, the clever hand-cutting convent. Oh my gosh, it's so great. And one thing that I love in this chapter, but also I love, love, love it with Snape, is Voldemort reads minds. Mm-hmm. So Oculumency doesn't come into conversation until book five, Order of the Phoenix. But Voldemort has the upper hand on everyone. And Voldemort says, Voldemort always knows. And you're thinking it's just because he's this powerful wizard. But when you get into Occamalency and you understand why he understands it, and then Snape can overpower Voldemort's Occamalency, it's just wild. Well, so so on that note, that actually makes this scene interesting, more interesting, because there's this part about like, you're going to betray me again, Wormtail, or like, Mm -hmm. who knows if you are going to. Potentially, he's reading Wormtail's thoughts about not wanting to harm Harry. Totally. He's absolutely reading that. Yeah. You know, so it's like, and that's where when Voldemort has that, I see, you know, he's he's basically already read Wormtail's mind that he will yeah. leave him at any second. He understands who actually is loyal and who's not, which makes it easy for him to eliminate those who stand in his way. And he has no remorse about it. And Frank notes that this, this well, man speaks about killing with no remorse. And it's sad because thinking about if he can read all of Wormtail's thoughts, he knows what Wormtail wants. Mm-hmm. He wants to be like a most loyal follower. He wants to be like a Snape, you know, where it's like Voldemort trusts you. You're the right hand man. And Voldemort uses that by dangling the carrot. Mm-hmm. So it's like he sees all he's ready to use all. It's an end game, right? So it's like if you if you can't block out Voldemort, you're screwed. You're done, essentially. Yeah. So there's that. There's a conversation about protecting the protection surrounding Harry, which I think is really cool because, of course, that's going to be deep. It comes full closure in book four, but it's actually a lot deeper than that because there's more protection around Harry than Voldemort even realizes, which is part of his weakness, his ego, right? And then what else do we have? Oh, and then the murder of Bertha um, Bertha Jorkins. So do you remember a lot about Bertha Jorkins? Because even when I was reading this, I was like, I have to kind of refresh my memory memory because they talk about one, they bring her into the conversation. They've murdered her. They have extracted crucial information that is essential to the plan. So right. I'm going to let Savannah speak to that in a second. But I do want to say that with Bertha Jorkins, they talk about why Wormtroll basically murmurs, why didn't we just wipe her mind? And he says, well, we know that you can extract memory. Even powerful wizards can extract memories that are deeply hidden. So I think that's really cool. Yes, we see. Yeah. And so... Bertha Jorkins, she heads up magical games and whatever that department's called, but basically in charge of like the Quidditch World Cup. Yes. So what? So, but do we ever know what the crucial information is that he she, that he extracted? Well, I bet it's something to do with getting Harry into the Goblet of Fire. 
Okay. I I always found that so interesting because I couldn't remember off the top of my head. And I was like, clearly this is crucial because and we're told through dialogue. Notice that we're not told in an, an info dump way. We're told through dialogue that they have information that was crucial in getting Harry. So we know yeah. it's tied to that. This is like, it's so fun because the book is so much different than the movie in this case. And there's mm-hmm. the part with Winky, there's Barty Crouch Jr. and Sr. Mm-hmm. And I know Barty Crouch has something to do with the, because of his position, he has to like sign off on stuff to do all this Quidditch stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I don't know if this is in the book or if I've just read this somewhere, but mm-hmm. didn't he, didn't she see Barty Crouch Jr. And there's like this whole deal of like, that's the secret. Oh, that's because he's supposed to be in jail, right? That sounds familiar. Barty Crouch's mom took okay. his place. Okay. He was dying. Yes, that sounds, yeah. that sounds familiar see good memory so yeah because there is these books ah so good (laughs) so there's a line in there that talks about when they're talking about extracting memory and i think as a reader you assume it's about wormtail you assume that like she's seen wormtail and why basically the line is about it wouldn't be good for someone to have have seen a wizard who's supposed to be dead walking around so right your attention goes towards that right but and we're really talking about barty crouch jr and like this Barty Crouch Jr. character who is the villain, like right, who's different force of antagonism. So he's number two, I'd say. Like in Chamber of Secrets, you got Voldemort. Well, you got the you yeah. know, Tom Riddle, the memory. And then you got Lucius. So you got his like number number one, number two. And in this one, it's Voldemort. Well, and in case Crouch it's been Jr. a while since anyone's read or seen it, Barty Crouch Jr. is the guy that's masquerading as Mad-Eye Moody. Yes. At the school, which yeah. eventually gets Harry into all this trouble in the Triwizard Tournament. So I'm remembering that there's something to do with the memory that I think Barty Crouch Sr. tried to like wipe the memory of Bertha Jorkin. I think you're right. I think and they yeah, that sounds Voldemort and whatever recovered it. Now they know Barty Crouch Jr. is there. Yeah. Barty Crouch Jr. is a follower. Right. Right. And that's how all this. And, but yeah, that's really cool. Is that you, you don't really get like too many details about Barty Crouch Jr. until you start seeing Dumbledore's memory. Right. But Barty Crouch, we know very quickly. Mm-hmm. So again, like not a setup in this first chapter, but a setup that creates purpose. Because right. I think sometimes what I've seen writers do is that they drop big moments when they basically forget to develop that moment and then just drop a big moment. But it's not as powerful because it hasn't been woven into the threads of the story. Right. And you have to weave the quilt. Right. And I think, so. yeah, that's something that like, because imagine we're reading this book or any book where this big surprise is dropped. You almost sit there and put the book down and you're like, wow. And then you start thinking about it. And if there's nothing there to pull, you're like, well, wait a minute, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. But in this situation, we're like, oh, my gosh, back in chapter one, Mm -hmm. she's already telling us this and then this happens. And then, you know, so it's like you unravel it and you're like, I feel really satisfied. If there's nothing there to unravel, you're like, I don't I don't like this story anymore. I mean, and that's where it's like when I get to these Harry Potter books and I'm just flat out (laughs) amazed. Like, I just can't even believe it. I've read them so many times and every time there's some, I mean, every time there is something else that I pick up on and it's just, wow. It's just, it's just extraordinary. And I think that I was talking to Savannah before we got off camera as we wrap up for today. Goblet of Fire is one of my favorites. Deathly Hollows is my favorite. And then Goblet of of Fire is my second favorite. And I was sitting down to read this. I just get excited immediately. I'm just excited. And that is a core emotion for action content genres, but I'm just, I'm just in love. And I think it just, you know, when a book changes your life, when it's something that the upteenth time you sit down and you're just in love. Right. Excited to read more. I want to read more sentences, you know? Yeah. 
Well, and now it's so fun the way that we've been studying these. It's like we have a whole new way to nerd out and to dig into this because, you know, as readers, we might appreciate these clues being dropped. But now as writers and editors, we're like, ooh, we can learn from this technique and apply it to our own stuff or to the writers we work with. Yeah, I once had a friend when I was analyzing this, I was just, you know, watching me analyze stories at once some point and said, do you, does it make you lose your interest in reading? You know, and I was like, You're no, like it's it the opposite. Me. I was like, it excites me. It makes me yeah. feel like this is a puzzle that I can figure out, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I can experience emotion and empathy through characters. You know, right. so yeah, it's such a great example. And I like looking at these first chapters because they've been so different over the first four books. Well, they've been different and the same, mm-hmm. you know, the same setup with Harriet Privet Drive and all that stuff. But yeah, it's amazing. We're going right back to Privet Drive in chapter two. Yes. You know, we're heading yes. back there, but we have to have this preface before. So yeah. yeah. So I think that's all. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. End of the discussion for Goblet of Fire. Where that which means we'll be looking at Order of the Phoenix next. Yeah. One, and I believe that's J.K. Rowling's favorite book. If I have read that correctly, so that will be an interesting discussion because that is a heavy book. So I'm sure we're in for another lively analysis of big picture and small picture there. I hope that you enjoyed Goblet of Fire today. And as always, Savannah, the best to be here with you. I just yeah. love our talks. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me. It's been literally the highlight of my weeks and my months. And I know that the listeners out there are really enjoying these episodes, not only because you guys are Harry Potter fans, but because you're all writing your own fiction and this is helping. So I'm so glad to hear all that and we will keep pumping them out. So stand by. So that's it for today's show. As always, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and showing your support. If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them over at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the show because there's going to be another brand new episode coming out next week. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review. Your ratings and reviews tell iTunes that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, that helps this show get in front of more fiction writers just like you. So that's it for today's show. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, happy writing.